0: So you may have read it in high school, you may have seen the film at some point, but there was this book by Harper Lee that came out in the 50s called To Kill a Mockingbird. Raise your hand if you ever read To Kill a Mockingbird or you even saw it, right? Set in a fictionalized town in Alabama in the 1930s, and all that goes along with being in the South in the 1930s. Uh, Atticus Finch is a widowed attorney with two kids. And the uh, emotional apex of the story of the plot is that a black man has been charged with a crime he has not committed. And now he is on trial for that charge. And the state has called its witnesses and the defense has called its witnesses. And now Atticus Finch, the attorney, who knows at what cost he is incurring in order to represent this man in that setting, in that season, has now come to stand and give his closing. And there in defense of Tom Robinson, he says in his closing this, our courts have their faults, as does any human institution. But in this country, our courts are the great levelers. And in our, in our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and in the jury system. That is no ideal to me. It is a living, working reality. Gentlemen, A court is no better than each man of you sitting before me on this jury. A court is only as sound as its jury, and the jury is only as sound as the men who make it up. I am confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence you have heard. Come to a decision and restore the defendant to his family. In the name of God, do your duty. In the name of God, believe Tom Robinson." And then he sits down, and then he's done. He knows where he is. He's reading the room. He knows the subculture that he is addressing, and he knows how the deck is stacked against a defendant like Tom Robinson for the charge that's been leveled against him. But when he says there in his last closing lines, in the name of God, do your duty, I think you could interpret what he means there by the word duty is to say in the name of God do what's good and for him to phrase it as he has is to remind them and to remind everybody that ever read that book and to remind us here this morning that to do good always has two things in mind to do good unto the Lord and to good unto your neighbor those are distinct priorities but they are inseparable you can't do one without the other That is what it means to be good. And that is what he is up against in that moment, in that courtroom, with that jury, in that subculture, in that setting, to be able to figure out how in the world shall goodness ever prevail? It's an important question for every setting. It's an important question for us. Far removed from 1930s fictionalized Alabama, It just plays itself out in different settings. We have been patiently pondering, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit, to have the fruit of the Spirit produced in us? It's not something you can do, but it is something that God means to do in you by His Spirit. And this week, we have reached that one yet many fruit of the Spirit, talking about goodness. What is it? what is it E.T. is it anything more than being sweet and nice and syrupy and cute no it's got to be something more than that and in fact it does and Atticus Finch presents us with that vibe I picked that introductory analogy for two reasons one Because it will speak to the text that we're speaking of this morning from Micah chapter 6. A text that you've probably heard a thousand times. A text that many of you, if you grew up in the 90s, began singing. He has shown me, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of me. You know that one. We're picking that analogy because of this text. But also because the passage we're going to read is spoken in the language of a courtroom scene. Micah is going to invoke a feel of us being in the courtroom, and he is going to step into three different voices, each of which has to do with asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to walk in goodness? And we're going to consider that under three heads. One, what is the compulsion to it? <clears throat> Secondly, what is a counterfeit version of it? Because we got to reckon with that, lest we satisfy ourselves with that Premature explanation. What is its compulsion? What is its counterfeit? And then finally, what is it? What is its character? Compulsion, counterfeit, character. Let's consider what goodness is in the eyes of the Lord from Micah chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1. I wonder if you could stand. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Arise! Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up from the land of Egypt, Redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised? And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, he's told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Every book has a context. Micah's is no different. It's a very short book, but it's really pithy, really profound. He's writing once again into a divided kingdom. It's been divided into north and south shortly ever since the end of Solomon's reign, whose own heart was divided at some point. At first, sold out for the Lord In wisdom, went by the name Jedidiah for a while, known as beloved of God, that's Solomon. And he sought God's wisdom and he led Israel as king and then his own heart became divided. Divided for his wisdom for the Lord and then divided for anybody other power that might shore up his own until that became even more important than this. And from that and in the wake of that, Israel divides into north, into south. And as most splits go, most of those who split feel like, finally, now we'll be pure. Now we'll be fine, now that we're done with the rabble. And what happens to both north and south? They become enamored with any other number of voices. They're far from pure. They're less than sound. They're anything but solid. And what's happened now is that in both north and south, those who lead, kings, kings, Prophets, priests have all come to treat their people like things. And it's bad. And Micah is speaking into their their treachery, everything. And in this first part of the passage, Micah, if you will, dons the wig, the robe, and becomes the prosecutor. You heard the language of an indictment. You heard him call forth as witnesses the mountains and the hills. Come hither, let me read for you this indictment. He says there in verse three, "O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me." Which is a funny way to begin an indictment. For the first five chapters. Micah has spared no expense and spared no words to explain what is wrong with North and South, the way in which that you are tearing each other apart, taking advantage over others to the disadvantage of others, and the world is a mess, and everybody's listening to their own ears and living for their own gain. And you think, he's just going to tee up again with the indictment, but how does he begin his indictment? It's almost in tears. It's almost like a father looking at his son saying, was it something I said? What did I do that has made you so defiant? It's this divine hand wringing. That's how the indictment begins. He says the word indictment two times. You think, oh boy, here it comes. And then he begins with almost tears. And then how does he proceed? Not by lambasting them with a rap sheet. He's almost already done that. What does he say? He he talks about three things. The prosecutor becomes a historian for a moment and he recollects certain acts, but not of Israel and Judah. He recollects certain acts from what God has done. He recollects three moments. I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you up out of the land of slavery and I gave you Moses and Miriam and Aaron to lead you. This I did for you. And then do you remember Israel? While you were wandering and the king of Moab, his name was Balak, no love lost there between you and him and how he finds some sort of prophet named Balaam who he procures and contracts with to go issue a curse upon Israel to throw them into oblivion and Balaam on his donkey heads there, shows up, prepared to do it, and then God intervenes through the donkey. Great story. Don't have time for it. There it is. And then Balaam flips. He was there to go curse Israel, and by the time it's all over, he's coming to bless Israel, and black king of Moab is like, oh, you can't get good help. Can't get good help. (laughs) And then, after that, from Shittim to Gilgal, about crossing over into the land, wait a minute, I thought this was an indictment. What's he doing? He's having them remember. He's having them remember what it says there at the end of verse five, the righteous acts of the Lord. He's come to recount for them what God has done to care for them, to love them, to be for them, and in turn, to in effect, lay claim upon them to say that you're mine. What's going on in this indictment is what I'm arguing here is the compulsion behind goodness. We'll get to its character. We'll get to what's required of us, Micah will say, but you better not talk about that first until you first talk about what should compel it. And it's here in those first three verses of this Micah 6 where I'm helping to remind us all of what is the most basic theological grammar that everybody has to get. And the kids are like, grammar, it's Sunday, dude, no! I don't do this on Sunday. Chill, it's gonna be fine. It's really gonna be short. There is only one lesson of theological grammar you ever have to get, and it comes down to verbs. What do we remember about verbs, class? Verbs can have number, singular or plural verbs can have tense past present future pluperfect future pluperfect all that stuff and in some languages it's obscured in english some verbs have gender but there is another uh, part of speech that verbs can have and that is mood like i'm not i'm not in the mood to do grammar on sunday not no no by, we're talking about mood here, is in terms of what is the verb doing in a sentence? What is it expressing? And there's two kinds of mood that I'm going to talk about this morning. There are others. Here's the two you only have to know if you want to be a Christian. It's called. <laughs> really? Really? I'm done with school. This is awesome. <laughs> two, the indicative and the imperative. If you can get these two, your world is a lot simpler. What's the indicative mood? It's what the verb is the verb is expressing what has happened or what is happening or what had that is was will indicative that's what the verb is doing what's the imperative you know what the imperative is. listen i just did an imperative commanding you i am commanding you with the verb listen is an imperative form do it right indicative imperative they go together they're different they're distinct don't confuse them but they always go together in faith always And so you're saying, oh, great. Okay, he's talking about the compulsion toward goodness. He must mean that the imperative, the command is what compels me to do good. Be good, right? (laughs) I can do better later. (laughs) Yes, but no. There is no being good, Drew, until you first believe what God has already done. That's the indicative We'll get to the imperative in due time. Trust me, the sermon's not done until we do that. But you better not jump to the character of goodness before you first talk about the compulsion to goodness. And that compulsion, as you saw demonstrated in those first three verses, is you've got to believe what God has done for you already. You have to believe that first. And you have to believe that always. The command will have its effect and it's meant to steal your resolve, but it better never be separated from the indicative. They go together. The indicative and the imperative always go together, class. There will be a test on this every single day. If you only focus on the indicative, if you only focus on what God has done for you, I understand why you might want to do that, but it is an act of presumption. why why would god do all those things on your behalf why would micah take the time to recount them for you there's a point you are blind deaf and dumb until you understand that there's a point and purpose to him acting in that way if you only look at the indicative you kind of don't understand like you're 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 a batsman at the plate you're there the ball comes you just stand there the point is to so what's the follow-through the imperative If you only focus on the imperative and you forget the indicative, you too are in a mess. If you only focus on the imperative, you are as someone being asked to climb Everest with nothing in your knapsack to feed you or give you water. You are like the captain of a ship for where there is no wind in your sails. Can't do it. I need something behind me. The indicative the imperative they're distinct they always go together that's the compulsion behind goodness and that's not new end of the grammar lesson that micah has already demonstrated for us in the first three verses okay that's the first point what's the second at this point micah takes off the wig takes off the robe sets aside the prosecutorial function and now he stands and enters into the voice of the accused from behind the table where he's the defendant. And in this moment, he takes on a different voice. And in this moment, you get the early sense that as the accused, now he's playing Israel. He was playing God as the prosecutor. Now he's playing Israel as a defendant. And at first you think, oh, sounds like Micah's gotten through. Because there, in Micah chapter 6, starting in verse Five, rather six, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And you think, it's working. Micah has pounded it home. They are remembering what God has done, and therefore they're getting it. Maybe Israel is turning over a new leaf, surely, because they're asking the most important question anybody can ask What does it mean to come into the Lord's presence and worship Him properly? And then you read a little further and you go, uh, wait, hold up. Uh, something's missing here. Because then once they've asked, what do I do to come before the Lord? Then, then you hear where the mind is. And he says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Uh, yearling calves, that's your Wagyu beef, folks. That's what you pay dollar for. He's saying, do I got to bring my choicest quality cut of beef to atone for my sin? And then he says, you know what? How about not just quality? Let's talk about quantity. How about I bring you 1,000 rams and 1,000 liters of oil? In other words, I mean, this is the Elon Musk of the moment, right? I'm going to give you everything. I got all kinds of money. I got all kinds of stuff. How about that? And then he rounds it all out by saying this. Tell you what, what if I give you my firstborn? I don't even give you my firstborn kid really how about that to atone for my sin and you think wow oh oh what character now that's worship now that's goodness no maybe you wondered why do we why do we smush Hosea 6 and Matthew 5 there into our affirmation of faith that Sarah Sarah wrote read this morning why why do we, why do we do that in, in both those passages you hear this fundamental misunderstanding that religious people fall into all the time that there's all sorts of religious things that i might do that have significance and they're important but they 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 fundamentally reveal um, you're blind what does Hosea 6 say? I, I, I want you with what shall I come before the Lord and how shall I bow myself before God on high? That's what Mike is asking. And then in Hosea 6, you hear him say, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Your burnt offerings are really interesting. And boy, do they suggest something, but boy, have they missed it. And then you hear Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, you've come to bring your gift before the altar. Boy, everybody's going to see it and isn't God going to be pleased? And yet, if somebody's got something against you and you know it, and now you are obliged to approach them to ask their forgiveness to see if they will consider it, please, please don't think that you can just come to the Lord, give your altar gift and, and like that's it, you're done. Those Are religious rituals and offerings and things that are important in a sense. They're sacred, they're enjoined. It's not like he's saying, I don't care about sacrifices anymore. No! But there is a way that you and I, just as it was for them, who can think, Gosh, I did all the things that I know that they want you to do on a Sunday or Wednesday, but then I forget about the weightier matters of what it means to be good. Look, you can come here. Look, I, I came here. I actually showed up. I could have slept in. The middle schoolers are, you know, they're playing with shaving cream right now, but I came. Pat, pat. I, I'm here. I've sung with gusto. I'm listening attentively or giving the impression that I'm doing so. And I might even tithe. I heard the budget went up. I'll tithe even a little bit more. Wow. All of those things are good. All of those things are called for but never is a substitute, never is a counterfeit. There are forms of religious activity that are really a counterfeit for what is really matters in the economy of God, that's the counterfeit. And we have to be aware of it because we can lie to ourselves. I did all of this, I gave all of that. Okay, let's back up. Let's talk now about the character of goodness because that's what matters here, right? Micah has donned the prosecutorial garb, the wig. He's taken that off. And then he has stood up as the defendant behind the defendant's table and answered in the form of what a defendant might and obviously answered erroneously. And now that sits down and now Micah is just going to stand up from the witness stand to be the prophet he was supposed to be, to call out and bear testimony to what is true. And he's going to tell them what goodness is what the character of goodness is. And it's a lot more simple than you think. One, he'll say, it's not new. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. Not new. You've had the memo. You've heard this over and about until you're like, ah, gag, I heard about it before. No, thank you. It's just a variation. It's just a riff on what you've been hearing from the beginning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This ain't new. You, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And he has shown you in his own acts from what he did for you in Egypt and with Balaam and from crossing over, all of that. He has shown you. And for Micah to say, oh man, he's like saying, look, you're frail, you're fragile, and you're often foolish, and God still is for you. This goodness, it's not new. That's one part, about, one part about the character. Also, it's also not optional. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. He has put before you an expectation of what it means to be his. He has shown you what is good and what is required, and therefore it's not new and it's not optional. This is what it means to live into and out of the belief that he has come for you. It's not new, it's not optional, it's not vague. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, and in this translation, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. There's the rub. That's the whole of it. And now we got to go, what does that mean? To do justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. It's, it sounds like three things. There's an and, and an and, and an and there. So those are conjunctions, right? It might be better to think of those ands, though, as becausees. There's sort of a chain going on here. What, what you hear at the roof is because of what's true of the interior is because of what's true of the foundation. To do justly is the roof. It's the outward facing part. It's what it means to do goodness. What is is to do justly? In Micah's day, how was it? Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. That's the opposite of justice. That's the opposite of doing justly. And God, through Micah, says there's going to be a disciplinary effort. There's going to be a judgment for that, if only to root it out and to preserve a remnant for those who believe what justice is. In that day, that's the opposite. That's what justly is. In Atticus Finch's day, it is for him to stand as a minority of one and to look into the eyes of all those people who have no interest in doing justice who look upon another man simply because he looks differently from them and they think he either has less or no dignity. Justice means believing that, that he does and that he is worthy of the same consideration that one might give anybody else. That's justly. Let me tell you about another story I learned this week. The reason Cherokee up the road is called Cherokee is because it was once populated mostly by Cherokee Indian. And if you know that story, you know that President Jackson ends up signing that treaty and forces them to relocate, and they walk to Oklahoma in what was, Oklahoma, what was called Indian Territory then, And what was called the Trail of Tears. Some of you have probably, I, my father grew up in Oklahoma, I, I did all the Oklahoma museums, I know the Trail of Tears sculpture of the, of the Cherokee slumped over on a horse that slumped over. But before they marched, they met a man named Evan Jones. He grew up in the Methodist tradition. He eventually becomes a Baptist missionary. He starts schools among the Cherokee. He begins literacy programs for the Cherokee. He insists upon translating the Bible into Cherokee, not just forcing them to learn the King James. And when he saw the treaty come down from the White House, he saw the fraud in it. And he knew what was about to happen, and he spoke against it. And when it didn't matter, and they pulled them out and uprooted them and forced them to Oklahoma, he marched with them. He went with them. And he was eventually declared a Cherokee. He knew what justice was, and he knew this wasn't it. And so he went with them. But it was not simply, in his mind, white man bad, Cherokee good. Because when he gets there to Oklahoma Territory, and as the Civil War begins to approach there were some Cherokee who decided to buy African-American labor to enslave them. Well, what does Evan Jones do then? It was not just all Cherokee good, white man bad. It was, this is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And he slides with the pro-Union Cherokee rather than those who were pro-slavery. And he got in trouble and he he had to fear for his life and he fled to Kansas. That's acting justly. It's believing in the dignity of everyone, but it's also believing in something that was greater than even who he was closest to in the moment. That's Evan Jones' story. Let me tell you about this guy named um, Bindawar. Let me give him his name properly. Wait for it. <clears throat> there it is. Pathak. If you know anything about the Indian caste system, if you're the lowest caste, you will never, ever emerge from there without something remarkable happening. And those who are on the lower caste are automatically expected to clean latrines with their hands. He spent months among them scraping with his hands as they were, human filth, until it began to ebb from his hair follicles. But he was an entrepreneurial sort, and he had a compassion on them, and he believed in something that was more just than what was going on then. And so he develops these poor toilets that once you install them, now here's the way to clean the toilets. That was still their job but if the whole society believed that you were just the ones that touched filth all the time, you're nothing, you're low, you're so low. And now he's created this whole new system by which now the toilets can be cleaned in ways that doesn't require them to touch it. And that helps improve the perception of the wider society about who these people were. He died last month. He did that all over the place. He brought women into his remit. He taught them how to read. He taught them how to write. He taught them how to open bank accounts. That was his thing because he believed in their dignity. That's, that's goodness, that's doing justly. And those are, obviously you get written up in The Economist or you get written up in other blogs. You made a name in what it means to do good. It doesn't have to be something that you get written up about though to be good. Goodness happens in a far more, those ways it's writ large. What is the way for goodness to be writ small? Let me, there's a great article this week from Esau Macaulay. He's a, he's a priest in the Anglican tradition. He wrote about how his ancestry came. To, many of his ancestors came to Jesus while being enslaved. While being slaves, their hope in the next world allowed them to face the world that they were in, and they were profoundly changed. Those that proceeded from those that were became Christians um, in, in slavery. Some of them marched in the civil rights movement. Some of them did not, and He saw makes reference to that in his article. And he, and he said this in the essay, what use is a religion that only produces characters in history books? Was there not room for more ordinary glory? Civil rights activists inspired me, but the people who changed my life were regular members of my congregation. I recognized that the viability of our faith could not be reduced to its usefulness as an agent of critique. It was not simply a tool to provide a religious veneer to policies I supported. It was not less than a social revolution. It was more. Their faith did the small work of making them better people they were inspired by what God had done and desired to be good to do good just as being simple people that were faithful in what they were responsible for in their own ways that would never be written about anybody ever read the kite runner like 25 years old I think maybe 20 years old I don't remember much from that story, but I remember one line from it where where Baba says to his young son about, like, what's the, if you want to distill what goodness is in the simplest terms, this is what he says, there is only one sin, only one, and that's theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. When you kill a man, you steal a life. When you steal his wife's right to a husband, you rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. There is no act more wretched than stealing that's the opposite of goodness but that shows you in its opposition what goodness is you don't defraud you don't deny you don't take from them what is theirs that's goodness that's what it means to be just but why be just that's the roof the roof rests on something else the translation you heard in the esv there is to do justly and then to love kindness which should sound familiar Because last week we talked about kindness. And kindness derives from that word we also talked about. It's the word hesed. Hesed is oftentimes translated as kindness. But when you look in the context here and you study some people that have kind of thought about this often, you realize, well, maybe there's a better translation of that moment, of that word. In fact, as you heard last week, hesed sometimes shows up in a variety of translations, in a variety of words like loyalty, like mercy, and also like covenant faithfulness. Based upon this context, I think what Micah would be better translated as, in fact, the scholars from the seminary I went to said it's probably best to say love, covenant, faithfulness. And in that sense, it means love, a faithfulness, a shared solidarity that you have with everybody of whom you are a part. And what is that solidarity based on? That you have a dignity conferred on you, not from any effort in you, It's simply by virtue of your existence. An existence that owes its origin to the work and intention of God. It's what we mean when we say that you are made in the image of God. When you love that, you see each other as he sees all of us as bearing his image and therefore in having an inherent dignity that no matter how poorly you live into it, it can't be taken from you. A lot of people today still believe in the concept. A lot of people today can't explain why they should. I've invoked his name before. He's got no place for faith in his life, but he had a wonderful podcast conversation that's in your resource talk this week from, from, with two Christian women, um, Leah Labrisco Sargent and um, Susanna Roberts, Black. Black Roberts. And they quiz him on stuff about all sorts of things. And at some point, he was honest enough to say, as an atheist, that he believes in dignity. He just doesn't know why. He said it this way. I'll concede that I'm a non-believer who has moral foundations that are derived from, whether I like it or not, the sort of philosophical tradition which was itself based on theological assumptions. From a tradition that sort of starts in a place where theological assumptions were assumed to be woven into the fabric of what we consider morality. He doesn't deny it. He knows he's an heir of that. How does it play out? All I can tell you is that from my limited and contingent point of view, the sort of inherent dignity and value of human beings slaps me in the face every time I observe human beings. And from a practical point of view, I feel that I have no choice but to take that seriously. He has no place for God, but he can't get rid of dignity. And all he can say is, I see it, I don't know what it is, I know when I see it. Well, here's the question to all of us, whether you believe in God or not this morning. Who told you you had dignity, and why do you believe it? Covenant faithfulness, the idea that we share in the image of God, there's your answer. That's your ground. And if you don't take that one, you've got to find some other one. We're just to one another because we believe that one another shares dignity in that regard. And why should we believe there's dignity? Obviously, that's, that's clear because you walk carefully with your God. He's the one that told you. He's the one that remind you that you're his. He's the one that acted you on your behalf. And therefore, the more he stirs me, the more he stirs me to see you as I hope he sees me, the more he stirs me to not defraud you or defame you or disparage you. I wanna invoke a witness to the importance Of goodness that's a lot younger than Micah and from somebody that you might have heard of this is not Tom Hanks version of it this is from the horse's mouth about his effort to ensure that goodness might prevail in a culture and first of all among children
1: we need to help our children become more and more aware that what is essential in life is invisible to the eye As he got older, it was more important for him to be strong in his beliefs. Maybe that was how he was getting his anger out, his anger that people didn't take him seriously. They didn't get him. They didn't get the depth of the show. He started out being Daniel, soft and quiet and shy, developed into King Friday. That is not correct. Now do it again and do it perfectly. Wasn't King Friday a wonderful insight into his character, his determination, and his ambitions? As a king, I must see that the world runs smoothly. Farewell to you both. That gruffness was his way of getting what he wanted across. Fred Rogers wanted something very badly and would do what he felt was necessary in order to get it. Let's take the gauntlet and make goodness attractive in this so-called next millennium. That's the real, that's the real job that we have. I'm not talking about Pollyannish kind of stuff. I'm talking about down-to-earth actual goodness. People caring for each other in a myriad of ways rather than people knocking each other off all the time. I mean, I don't find that funny at all. What changes the world? The only thing that ever really changes the world is when somebody gets the idea that love can abound and can be shared you're
0: doing a great job Remember Coco? I remember Coco. Goodness changes a culture, goodness changes a world, goodness presupposes, though, a belief that love is both good and necessary. Where does, to borrow his answer, where does one find the idea that love matters? Amid the chaos of Micah's day and of the promise of judgment, Micah also speaks of a promise in chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient of days. And then in the last two verses of the whole book, Micah speaks as an Israelite who is finally honest with himself, who says there in chapter 7, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Who is the one to rule over a people who will listen, but only first because he casts their sins into the sea? It would not be by those people giving up their firstborn to atone for the sins of their own soul It would instead be by God Himself giving His one and only to satisfy the justice of the law, to demonstrate covenant faithfulness to all those with whom He shared flesh and blood, and to demonstrate humility before His Lord by doing what He asked and only doing what He heard His Father doing. It's the gospel. Where do you get the idea of love that might inspire the goodness that we hear of in both simple and large ways? From the belief in what he has done for you in the indicative. Paul puts it in a very different context with a very different question in mind, the indicative in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. That's the indicative. Bought with a price by Jesus. So glorify God in your body. Different issues addressing. Same idea. So glorify God with your goodness, both in your body, by your prayers, with your money, whatever it might be, to act justly, to love faithfulness out of a mark of walking humbly. The indicative and the imperative in full view, coupled, inseparable. What does goodness look like? I'll end with where Paul ends towards the end of his letter to the church at Rome. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What does that mean? Jesus painted a parable of what a goodness is by that parable of the good Samaritan, the outsider that shows up all the so-called insiders about what goodness is. We are to become that Samaritan. But to borrow a thought from another pastor who probably borrowed it from somebody else, before you can ever be that Samaritan, you have to believe yourself the one to have been beaten and bruised on the road and left for dead. You have to see your own need of what you did not possess, broken by the own corruption of your own heart and by the wiles and schemes of the devil. And Jesus must be your good Samaritan first, the indicative, such as Jen learn how to be a neighbour in goodly fashion. Let's pray. So we will need your spirit to take all these wonderful stories and high abstractions that are perhaps too lofty for their own good to find a way to believe that you have been good to us first and then manifest what it looks like to be good. in the moment we find ourselves in, it will be different for each one of us just as we are differently people. Father, we ask for what we do not have to trust what we cannot see to act in ways that feel perhaps foreign to us and yet resonant with a country we have not yet seen that sounds glorious. Father, help us as people, as individuals, but also as a family to know what goodness is and not to be afraid to walk in it because of our belief of what you were unafraid to do for our good. In the name of Jesus, who showed us back.